All right, and welcome to season two of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psych Program and host of Psych and Stuff. Today, we're going to talk about empathy and morality with our brand new faculty member, Dr. Jason Cowell. How are you, Jason? Ah, great. It's great to be here. Good. I'm so glad to have you. So, um, so Jason, uh, I want you to go ahead and, I mean, so first of all, you're a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and is that a fair description? I want to yeah, make sure. Yeah, absolutely. Not... Absolutely. I, I use neuro methods for a lot of different questions. Okay. Sounds good. So um, I guess first and foremost, maybe describe for people your, your background. Where are you from? What do you teach? Uh, when did you graduate? All that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I'm originally from the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, about uh, three hours north east of here in Marquette, Michigan. Uh, I did my undergraduate studies in philosophy with a minor in psych and some aspects of bio. Uh, and We I should talk about where, by the oh, way. Oh, because... at the University of St. Thomas, which yeah. is a common string. Yes, and that's important because that is also where I did my undergrad. Yes, so we, I we are both to... alumni we're, uh, we're slowly... of our proud institution. <laughs> we're slowly taking over the university. There it is, so there it is. So. Uh, yeah, so I was at the University of St. Thomas, and uh, I, I really started to like questions that had to do with ethics and reasoning. Um, and so that's what I was studying in philosophy. And I had a brilliant undergraduate mentor who said, you know, you really need to consider asking these questions in an experimental way. So I went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota and specialized in developmental psychology, where I was trying to look at how these different processes develop across ages. So all the way from infancy through adulthood, I wanted to see how things change, how we start to learn about right and wrong, and how that differs based off of uh, parental context, but most importantly, how it starts to change based on neural development, because that's been my specialty, is trying to figure out how the brain changes and how brain changes lead to different in our uh, empathy and morality, which are right. big terms. Let, let's actually start there and talk about empathy and morality, because on the walk down here from our offices to the podcast studio here at UW-Green Bay, uh, I, was, uh, I asked you, you know, about your work, and you said, well, I, I study both empathy and morality, and you said to me, those are both different things. And so I would, I would love to kind of start out with a, some definitions for people. What do these two things mean? And, and in what ways are they say, do they overlap? In what ways are they different? Yeah, so there's actually been, in, in the last several years, you, uh, there have been a whole bunch of big articles that have come out in things like the New York Times or uh, TED Talks about what is empathy. And the biggest question has been, um, is this something that is good? Is this something that is bad? Uh, Paul Bloom, who's a famous psychologist from Yale, uh, has has made a big argument in the last couple of years that empathy is a bad thing. But realistically, when we're talking about empathy, we're talking about this huge umbrella concept that can mean so many different things. It can mean something as simple as just knowing that another person has an emotion. So that knowledge that someone ha is experiencing some kind of pain or is experiencing something, that can be empathy. Um, but it can also range all the way to empathic concern is what I would call that, where you start to feel sorry for the plight of another individual. And so really, we, we tend to think of empathy as three broader categories. It's this basic perspective-taking kind of aspect. It's this idea of uh, taking a step and trying to say you feel something for the plight of that other individual. Or it's actually a really rare case called affective resonance, which is actually where you go and feel the feelings of the other individual. And you sometimes see this especially when people are mad. So if someone is really mad, we sometimes talk about that being contagious, that anger is contagious, which is mm -hmm. uh, so, something that Dr. Martin knows a lot about. <laughs> um, 
when we're talking about this contagion, this emotional contagion aspect, that's also considered to be a part of empathy, that you're feeling an emotion that mirrors the emotion of the other individual. So that's empathy, and you can see where all of those kind of lead to very different things. We like to think that if you start to feel sorry for the plight of an individual, you then want to make some kind of uh, changes that will help them. And that's where we start to get into morality, the idea that you know things that are right or wrong, that you do things that are right or wrong, or that you can start to bridge this, uh, this difference between knowing something and doing something. And so that's where a lot of my research has come, is in the bridge between knowing something is good and actually doing something that's good. Wow, very, very nice. So I, I, I want to come back to your research because I, I, I'd like for you in a moment to discuss some of the, your most sort of interesting findings for yeah, us. But yeah, before yeah. we do, I want to ask you, because you, you said something that really piqued my curiosity, and that is, um, and I don't remember the name, but someone describing empathy as a bad thing. Uh, first of all, who was the person you yeah, mentioned? Yeah, so this is, this is Paul Bloom. Uh, okay. He's a famous psychologist from Yale, and his basic argument is that um, he takes the, the idea of doctors, for instance. If you're in a doctor's office, you want the physician to feel some kind of compassion for you, to feel something for your plight but you don't want them to feel what you're feeling. So if you are sitting there in the doctor's office and you're feeling exhausted and sick and throwing up, the last thing you want is your doctor to feel exhausted, sick, and throwing <laughs> up at the same time. And so when you kind of differentiate this, you say, okay, that is a part of empathy. It's actually a rare case of empathy. Um, so you could say empathy is a bad thing in that way. Another way that some people argue empathy is a bad thing is that as you start to take the perspective of another individual, you start to feel closer to them. And feeling closer to another individual tends to lead to biases. And so when we start to think of group dynamics, what ends up happening is you actually create an in-group and an out-group, and these well-known group formations tend to influence how moral you are to the out-group. Uh, you tend to feel uh, a lot more uh, in line with your in-group, you tend to share more with that in-group, you tend to spontaneously help them more. If you see someone fall, you will try to help them stand up. Whereas with the out-group, you start to form certain types of ideas about who and what they are. I mean, great examples of this come with sports teams, for instance. If you start to get really interested in uh, the Packers, which is the big one up here, then you start to identify with Ooh, all I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. I don't know. This. It's just this, this team that's up here. I, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, but uh, Packers fans are a great uh, example of this, where you feel a certain camaraderie with your fellow Packers fans. You know the kinds of emotions they're feeling, oftentimes because you're feeling those emotions as well during game day but you also make certain attributions about outgroup members. So people like Vikings fans, people like Bears fans. Um, if you see all of the, uh, the, the current hubbub about uh, you know, the release of Josh Sitton and him now going to the Bears, and there's a big argument that that's betrayal. And this idea of betrayal as an outgroup member is an interesting thing because it's one of these things where empathy, which we think of as good, we think of as, oh, this should always yield a better situation, actually, tends to yield in-group and out-group biases. Huh. Interesting. So, so I, I want to know, um, now I've, I've seen your resume, so I know you're super, super well-published, and I know we can't talk about all your work here, but I'm wondering if you could pick for me sort of one of your, what you think is one of your most interesting findings and describe it for people and kind of give us the, the nuts and bolts. How did you do the study? How did you, you know, and what, what all did you find? Yeah, so I'll actually, uh, I, I'll, I'll comment on, it's kind of two studies that are published in separately, but they're about the same uh, aspects working forward. It's a program looking at the earliest signs 
of morality in children. Um, so these two publications, in both of them, what we are trying to do is bring neuroscience methods to child psychology. We are trying to solve questions that have to do with what is right and what is wrong and how that translates to behavior. But we were trying to look at the neural underpinnings of these kinds of aspects. So in the first paper, um, what we did is brought 12 to 24 month old infants and toddlers into the lab and we put an EEG cap on them. And what an EEG cap gives us a really good idea of is when things are happening in the brain. Not necessarily where they're happening in the brain, but when. How fast are you actually processing these kinds of behaviors? And so we showed these infants a really nice video where one character was trying to help another character up a hill, or one character was coming and trying to push the other character down the hill, keep them from being able to get up the hill. And what we did was looked at how the brain immediately reacts to these kinds of scenarios. And what we found was pretty astounding in some ways, because it turns out within 100 milliseconds after you see another character, a, a cartoon character, help a person or hinder a person, you already see a differentiation. So before I can even snap my fingers, infants, 12-month-olds, are differentiating between these two aspects. What's really interesting, though, is we could actually predict the nature of those differences from parents' ideas about sensitivity and justice. Uh, so what we did was we asked parents a lot of questions about fairness and um, justice in the everyday world, and we were actually able to link the nature of the individual difference early on between processing helping and hindering characters was predicted by parents' values. And that's as young as 12 months, which is this astounding idea that parent values may already be transmitting to children's own neural processing of helping and harming behaviors. So this gave us a really early idea that at 12 months you can start to see, on a neural basis, some underpinnings of processing, helping, and hindering actions. But we wanted to say, okay, it's great, you can see that there are thought processes happening, but when does this predict behavior? Because that's what we're really interested in is, how do we make better people? How do you make someone that shares? How do you make someone that helps? And so what we did was follow this up with preschoolers. And we brought about 70 preschoolers into the lab and also did EEG. And we had very quick scenarios where they were also seeing characters help or hinder. And what we were able to show is that individuals and differences in that, particularly later aspects, so about a half a second after they saw this, if they were likely to come back and reconsider those helping scenarios more than the hindering scenarios, and this is on a neural level, that actually predicted the amount of sharing they would do in a later game. So what we could do is say that this early processing of good and bad behaviors of others directly predicts your own actions. And it kind of gives us an idea of how we can intervene in the future, which is kind of where I see some of my future research going. Well, I wanna, so I want to come back to the intervene part in, in a moment. Um, you said, um, no, sorry, we're just going to go there now because I forgot what my question was going to be. <laughs> that's all good. Um, <laughs> and as promised, we don't edit these, so that's just going to be in there. There we go. Um, so um, let's talk about the intervention part. I, I think that's one of the things I'm interested is, you know, if we're to take – um, okay, so we'll back up. I'm a dad, right? I've got I've got a four year old and a six year old, and I'm curious about things. So if 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 raising uh, children who feel empathy is important to me, 
how do I do it? What are things that we would suggest? And, and you know, gir- we've been trying out a couple of these things. Um, I'm currently, so some of my other projects that I didn't talk about have to do with, uh, there's a 15-country cross-cultural project that we're looking at the development of morality and empathy. And we started off in, in several countries, and one of the countries that we were finding really interesting results in was Jordan. And so what we decided to do was follow this up and do an intervention program in Jordan. There was some recent research about five years ago that suggested that fiction, starting to read fiction novels specifically that talked about emotions, tended to increase a child's ability to start to take another person's perspective. And we think that may actually be a pathway to go forward with empathy. So what we're currently doing in this project is taking groups of Jordanian children and we're trying to look at if we do an eight-week program of constant reading intervention where in one case we have them coming to the library twice a week and reading fiction novels that focus on emotions in others. And in the other program, we're having them read fiction novels that don't focus on emotions. And what we're trying to show is that by having this kind of practice about reconsidering emotions in others by being able to practice at perspective taking, this may yield less outgroup biases. That's part of why we're really interested in Jordan is that there are some uh, pretty pretty well-established in-group, out-group biases in children there. And so we're trying to get rid of these out-group biases. We're trying to get rid of some of the attributions for out-group. We're also trying to get rid of um, a lack of sharing that tends to happen. So we're trying to really increase generosity in these kids. And we're really hoping we're doing a pre-post design um, and it's currently in its second instantiation. So within about three or four months, I should have some good results on that. We'll see. I want the record to show a podcast being uh, not a visual medium, but but our producer, a, a former English major here at UW-Green Bay, just <laughs> leapt a little bit and did a silent cheer when you said that reading, reading fiction, reading fiction <laughs> was Absolutely. important. So, and I will admit, as a parent, I did a little cheer as well, thinking that all those, those many, many nights that I've been reading to my kids are time well spent. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's exactly it, yeah. is that it's, it's something that we intuitively know is probably important, but we might not know the mechanism why, and so that's really what we're right. trying to get into. When, or all of the various, po- you know, I mean, people talk about the value of reading to your kids yeah. uh, associated with language development yes, and learning exactly. vocabulary and all these things. Exactly. So the notion that there's other additional benefits that we're not recognizing is really important. Absolutely. Um, so. Very nice. So where do you see this research going for you in, in your lab? What are some of your, your goals? And you don't have to spill anything if it's top <laughs> secret, but um, if you can give us a sense of what, what you'd like your lab to do. And, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, my goal is to start a neuroscience research lab here at UWGP. I think it's an amazing opportunity to have students involved in at the everyday aspects of neuroscience, specifically EEG. I'd love to get an EEG lab running here. And what that allows us to do is really try to differentiate between different theories. So you heard me when I was talking about some of the big results that that I've previously had, where I was saying, okay, things happen immediately or things happen in the long run. Well, that's based off of 100 years of morality uh, theoretical aspects where people are arguing, oh, it's this gut instinct. You have a gut instinct about morality. Or it's this... Uh, reasoned basis of morality. You're going back and trying to constantly think about why this happens. And it turns out in kids, it's both. And so what I think neuroscience brings is this really cool way to start to differentiate between theories. And so that's how I see my future work going. What I really want to get into is specifically empathic concern. I think that avenue that you can work forward bridging empathy and morality is to look at how do we start to make people feel sorry for the plight of others? How do we start to see the pain of others 
and make them feel something for this. But the first step towards doing that is to start to document what happens in the brain when we see other people in pain and are asked to feel sorry. So we have to start to take a perspective of feeling sorry. Um, so my future studies will start by just priming people to feel sorry for the plight of others and looking at how that uh, unfolds in the brain on a temporal level. Um, I've done a little work on this in a spatial level already, so using MRI, uh, and so I'm trying to bridge those and then link them to moral behaviors, link them to um, ameliorating outgroup biases, and to start to do that in an adult population, and hopefully by learning more about empathic concern in adults, we can bring that down into a developmental pathway and start to see how we can intervene at an earlier age to make these kinds of changes that yield adults who are more <coughs> compassionate for each other. And, I, and that brings me, so I remember the question that I was going to ask before. Yes, and all right, what is and, it? And that is, you had mentioned that there being a relationship between parents, uh, you know, empathic concern and kids. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and as early as 12 months, um, uh, essentially. What, where does that come from? I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's, it's the tricky question. <laughs> the, the tricky question is, if you see something at 12 months, does that mean that it's something genetic? Not at all. Not at all. I think the biggest argument here, uh, there are these old papers that talked about how we can conceive of genes and the environment playing a role even at the earliest stages. And I really like the way that they conceive these. Uh, it's these Scar and McCartney papers from the late 60s and early 70s. And what they basically make the argument of is uh, there are passive gene by environment interactions, there are active, and there are evocative. So what does that mean? That means in one way, parents might be setting up scenarios that their children are challenged by that yield the same types of values just based off of the environment that they are setting up. So that's a very active way of saying, okay, um, we want our children to learn morals. We want our children to be more empathic. So let us start to scaffold this with the environment. And that's one way that this may happen. It's probably the most likely way that this happens by 12 months of age. But one of the ones that I think is tricky and that is interesting is this evocative gene by environment interaction. There have been some recent studies that have looked at candidate gene studies, so looking at specific um, combinations of alleles, and they've been able to predict some aspects of pro-social behavior. So it seems that there are certain aspects of uh, allele formation that yield, in general, self-control and pro-social behavior. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's not set in stone. But what's interesting is if you think, okay, a parent probably has a certain type of set that may be transferred to the child. There's some heritability in that. So what then ends up happening? Well, you have a child who has similar characteristics to the parent, which means they tend to evoke, this is where that word evoke comes in, the exact same environment as the parent received. So it's not surprising that when you are getting the same responses from others, you start to form the same types of beliefs and behaviors. It's really easy to see when you think about, uh, for instance, anxiety. Uh, when it, so this is outside of my field, but when you think of anxiety, a lot of times you see high genetic carryover between anxiety uh, symptoms in parents and anxiety symptoms in children. And one of the things that we think might happen there is that the carryover is actually in the evocative environmental effects, where you kind of pull the exact same experiences from others, the same interactions with others across your childhood, and start to develop certain types of anxiety disorders similar to your parents, not necessarily because your parents taught you this, that very active right. way that we tend to think of, but because you drew the exact same interactions. Right. Well, it's, I, I use this example in class of like, so, you know, my dad was scared of heights, right? And so he, did, he didn't tell me, Ryan, you should be scared of heights too. 
but whenever we were in a high place, he would hold my hand a little tighter. He would exactly. he would pull me back from those things. subtle cues yep. of of change. Yes, exactly. So, and, and in some ways, with with empathy, there is a piece of that kind of classic sort of do what I say, not what I do piece, and that you parents who encourage it but don't act in such a way, um, you know, maybe encourage it verbally. You, you should be nice to people, but they themselves aren't nice to people. Um, that kids pick up on those. Non- Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. That you pick up on those cues of uh, what expected behaviors are. It's hard to make the argument by 12 months, right. but definitely by the preschool age kids that we were studying. Those yeah. are things that are being picked up for right. sure. Very, very interesting. This is great, but it is now time to turn on to our, our five uh, questions. So okay, all right. Regular listeners know, which is everyone, uh, <laughs> that we, uh, we play a game uh, at the end of every episode called Five Questions, where we ask, brace yourselves, five questions uh, of, our, of right. our guests that I draw from a hat here. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and draw from it. You can pass, but I will probably shame you for it later. Okay. Uh, <laughs> do, do you have a favorite newspaper or blog? Ooh. Um, so I really enjoy reading the New York Times, uh, but that's the easy one to always say. Um, I tend to actually, I have Flipboard on my phone and on my iPad, and so I get sources from everywhere, including BBC and New York uh, Times and all of the above. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, did you Flipboard? Yeah, Flipboard. Um, Great app. You select the kinds of things you're interested in, like psychology or whatnot, and it'll pull all the relevant articles from multiple news sources that day, and it's kind of your own personalized newspaper. This part of the podcast brought to you by Flipboard. There you go. (laughs) We're going to hit them up for money later. That's how advertising works, right? You advertise and then you ask for money? Thank you, Kate. Um, (laughs) what, what uh, What is your favorite meal? Ooh, I love brunch. I am a big <laughs> brunch person, so my favorite meal is probably some sort of Eggs Benedict yeah. at, a, oh, yeah. at a brunch joint. I like Eggs Benedict as well. Oh, this one's – no, it's not blank. Okay. What's your favorite sport? Uh, I played lacrosse in college, but I actually like football quite a bit. So uh, right. it's it's good that I'm now in Packers country and can really yes. appreciate football. <laughs> That's good. Um, ooh, this is kind of related to what we were just talking about. What, what was your favorite book as a child? Ooh, uh, favorite book as a child. <laughs> it had better be something that encourages empathy. Yeah, I mean, it it's be kind of funny because the joke that my sisters and I always have is that we read the Berenstein Bears a lot as yeah. kids, children, and uh, I was constantly referenced as the braggy bear, uh, and that's a bad <laughs> thing, so I had to learn humility through the Berenstein Bears. So I'll go Berenstein Bears. There we go. Okay, good, good. I, I only have one Berenstein Bears book for my kids, but it was one that I had as a child. One, one thing I should say, just a little uh, random tangent here, is that the books that I had as a kid that my mom has now given to me to read to my kids, we've actually ended up throwing most of them out because <laughs> they have terrible messages. I mean, some of them are, they're always, they're highly gendered in ways that we're not comfortable with. Absolutely. And, and so we've ended up really kind of tossing a lot of those books and um, which, but you discover it as you're reading it, unfortunately. So you're reading the book and thinking, yikes, this and you is go, oh a, yep. no, what did I just do? Yep. <laughs> there and, it is, and, yeah. And so a lot of them I've, I'm actually sort of editing while I'm reading them. <laughs> 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 and and then deciding to hide them forever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, or just limit like full full paragraphs where I say, okay, we're gonna skip that part. I'm not gonna show you that picture either. <laughs> so, um, oh, this is a good one. What TV show or movie are you ashamed to admit you love? Ooh, 
Okay. That was uh, our last question. So this is a biggie. You got to really nail this. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the one that makes me feel guilty every time I watch it is probably Breaking Bad, but I uh, love the show. I think what? it's brilliantly done. I think it's about morality, yeah. and yet you feel kind of bad watching what's going on. Okay. I, I will say that is my favorite show of all time. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so, so, but you don't feel guilty about I've watching I've never it. felt guilty. I, I, I guess sometimes, you know, I found myself in that sort of quandary of who am I cheering for exactly. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you know, trying absolutely. to figure out, should I be cheering for... Uh, for Walt or Jesse or what, you know, and so not, Fair enough, not yeah. sure what I'm supposed to. So I struggle <laughs> anytime we have a movie with like an anti-hero like that or show with an anti-hero. I find myself wondering, what am I doing here? Who am I cheering? Dexter was another good example. Like, yeah, yeah, Who am absolutely. I cheering for? Um, a good example of that, too, is Game of Thrones, if you yes. haven't seen it. It's, yep. it's a great one about who do I actually cheer for here. Yeah. It's the second time we've mentioned Game of Thrones on this podcast. Oh, actually. lovely. When, when right. Dr. Joel Morocco was on, we talked about Game of Thrones a little. There we go. It's, it's <laughs> so, just a solid show. Yeah, Highly recommended. We, we've actually binged. Uh, we, we had to catch up, and so we started in, uh, like, January and caught up by the time <laughs> season six started. So. Well, it's finally at the point where, if you've read the books, it's kind of adding to that storyline now, which is, is good that. for people who binge read the books years ago. You know, I will say, I um, the interesting thing about Game of Thrones for me is that, on paper— there is nothing about this show that I should like. You know, <laughs> That's that exactly it. Yeah. I, I have never been into kind of fantasy type stuff. I've never been into the, um, to, to that kind of work. I've not, I, I actually, one thing that I loathe and am never interested in is any kind of, um, uh, well, violence is part of it, but then also bloodlines when it comes to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. to, um, royalty and things like that so I find myself thinking why is it that I like the show when I don't like any of the elements like somehow you mixed all these things together and, and it's delicious uh, it, but it is it yeah. is so part of it is just really well acted and really well directed and written and that's stuff. exactly yeah, yeah. I'm just going to throw this out because I started it last night, but the sh- or two nights ago. But the show Bloodline on Netflix Haven't is seen it. Uh, amazing. Uh, we're okay. three episodes in, and it is incredible. And so, and it made me think of it because I was talking about Bloodlines, but it is uh, <laughs> ridiculous. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Jason. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. here. Thanks for having me. This is great, Jason. Is there so if somebody wants to know more about you, um, I don't know if you're on Twitter or any. I'm of those. not on Twitter. Okay. Uh, I am on ResearchGate. Uh, okay, good. Facebook, and I should have a department website up pretty yes. soon here. Good. Uh, hoping to start a lab sometime this semester, so I should have a lab website up All too. Right. Just stick around; I'll have more of a well, presence soon. And here's what we'll do: is um, <laughs> once you have those things, we'll we'll post all about it on the Psych and Stuff Facebook page, which people can follow, as well as Psych and Stuff on Twitter. Um, and so Sounds once great. once you have a website, we'll post it there, um, and uh, and give give that information to people. Um, which, listeners, is a hint that you should be following us on Twitter uh, as well as on Facebook. You can learn more about our guests uh, and, and what we're doing there. Um, so I want to thank a couple people. In addition, addition to Jason, I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley. Thank you so much, Kate. I want to thank our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees, who did the beautiful podcast art. Next episode is going to be Dr. Sawa Zanzaki of the Psych and Human Development Program. She teaches social psych for us as well as a host of human development classes. And she's going to talk about her uh, research in uh, culture and development, which is fascinating, fascinating stuff. And you've actually worked with Sawa a little bit. or We have, yeah. yeah. We've written a couple of grants together and hoping to do some cross-cultural work in the future. Yeah, so should be a great episode. We are at every other week is our uh, our episode schedule at this point. So that episode is not going to come out next Thursday, but the 
the Thursday after that. So thank you so much for listening. We will be back soon.